Record. Recording. Okay. So it looks like traffic was much better today than it was on Monday. So if you did notice, so if, if you are looking at your grades on WebCT, I have been putting your attendance in each day. So double check me on it. I mean, I take it right off the sheets, but I can get distracted and skip a name. So make sure you let me know because I can always go back and fix it if you see one. I've got you marked absent where you know you signed in. So do double check those, but you should have, I usually put them up that afternoon when I go right, when I go back to the office, I'll usually have them up that day. So do double check and make sure I didn't mark you absent on the day you were here. Because I do save all those sheets so I can go back and check them if we need to, if I make a mistake. I don't want to teach you out any points you deserve. <coughs> all right, assignments coming up. Quiz number one is available through Sunday. And that does cover chapters zero and one in the book. We finished chapter zero and we're a good chunk through chapter one. If we don't finish chapter one today, we'll probably finish it on, well, we'll finish it on Friday for sure. And then homework number one on those same two chapters is due Friday. So don't forget that. If you don't have, I have a couple more copies here. If you don't or if you lose it, there's copies are available on WebCT so you can always print it out Thursday night because everybody likes to do everything Thursday night, right, when it's due on Friday? I had one person in my other class turn it in already, so that was good. And then we have an exam coming up, which I said, that date is, we're fix, I'm fixing that date. Normally I'd probably be a little bit behind and I'd say I'd put it off till Monday, but I won't have time to grade it and get it back for you at that point. So what I will cover is chapter zero, chapter one, and as much of chapter two as we get through on Wednesday. So if we don't finish chapter two, there might be some parts of it that I won't include on this exam. So anything that I don't talk about I won't include on the exam. We should be close from what I'm judging right now. Depends on how things go today. But because we have today, we have a la lecture period on Friday and then we have a lecture period on Wednesday. See, if we didn't have Labor Day, we'd be fine because I'd easily be done by Wednesday and we'd be, be great for it. But I do want to get it in and that way I can, on Monday the 12th, I can turn back your exams and everybody can go running out screaming, <laughs> drop, drop. No, it won't be that bad. And I have been known to adjust exams too. My exams have been tough. I sometimes do have to adjust them a few points, but I let you know that all the first day. So when I come, when they come back. So I'll take care of all that. So I don't think it should be that bad. But it'll be just on those two chap, two full chapters, and as much of two as we get through by the end of the class on Wednesday. Any questions on those before we go on and get started? No, no. I don't think any. Nobody's tried the quiz yet in this class. The other class, a couple people have tried it. So. But again, I recommend waiting until at least I get through the material just because at least you've heard what I think about the, about the topic. So it helps a little bit. Okay, picture of the day. August 31st of 2011. That means at least, next, at least tomorrow it'll be September and it'll feel regular to be back in school, right? Not having been here for almost two weeks. It's not really an astronomy. Well, it is an astronomy picture in a way, but not exactly. Looks like a storm coming in. Doesn't it a little bit? It's actually what they call a roll cloud. And I'll start this by saying I'm not a meteorologist, so I don't know all about clouds, especially not on the Earth. If you ask me about clouds on Jupiter, I know a lot more about clouds on Jupiter or Venus than I know about clouds on the Earth. So I don't know a lot about it. So if you have a meteorology, taking a meteorology class or something, you may want to ask you know, your professor about that. And they may be able to explain to you a lot more about what a roll cloud is. But from what I've read about it, a roll cloud is just a big cloud. It's not a separate cloud, but it's a big long tube cloud almost. So it's a really long cylinder cloud that comes in as part of a 
that can come in depending on how the conditions form that can come in as part of the storm. So instead, from what I read, it said it's not connected to anything else, so it sort of stands alone by itself as this big tube coming in in the sky and in towards, your, towards you in the sky. Now it also tells me they're not related to tornadoes, so they don't like flip over and become a tornado, which is always a good thing. We don't. Had enough earthquakes, so had our little earthquake a little while ago, or what, a couple week ago, or what was it a week ago now? Just about a week ago, wasn't it? Was it, last, it was last Tuesday. And then I just heard from my sister who just got back to Japan that she just got back end of last week and has already had her first earthquake. So, so of course, there those the little earthquakes that we have here would be something you'd just say, oh, that's nothing, but. But that's, what, that's essentially what the roll cloud is. I said, if you've got a meteorology class, you've probably got an expert there who can probably tell you a lot more about it than I can. But we'll come back and we do our little section on the planets. We'll talk a little bit about the clouds on Venus and the clouds on Jupiter and Saturn and some of the planets as well. So we'll talk, we will talk a little bit more about clouds. But just sort of an interesting little, interesting little different type of picture this time. And we'll see what we've got on Friday. Any questions on that, I'll try to answer. But I say I don't know a lot of... Don't know a lot about it. That was taken in 2007, so a couple years ago. No, no? I know, we just want to go, right? We just want to go. We don't want to go on. We want to go, right? <laughs> Class done, I know. Okay. Just think, it's almost September, and then three months after, class will be over. <laughs> Scary now, right, with all the stuff we got to do in the meantime. Okay, we were here last time. I believe I'd started looking at this for you, showing you this. And I had mentioned one other astronomer that I hadn't put in the slides, Tycho. I think I mentioned his name to you last time. But he was an astronomer before, this is before Galileo. So he actually worked before the time of Galileo, so before telescopes. And he was an, he was an observer of the stars and the planets. And he observed the stars and recorded their positions extremely accurately. Not as accurately as we can do nowadays with modern instrumentation, but extremely accurately for the time. And he made all these observations that made what we're going to be talking about in the next few slides by Kepler possible. He didn't do anything. He just collected all these observations. He hired Kepler as sort of the person to go through and do the math and analyze all of the observations and see what's actually going on. And what Kepler found when he looked at all of Tycho's data was that the orbits of the planets were not circular. And for all of time before this, before this time in the 1500s, all the planets, everything we use to determine orbit planets, orbits of planets, all those epicycles and everything we talked about last time, was always a circle. And it turns out when he looked at the orbit of Mars, which is actually the one that Kepler studied first, fortunately Mars has a relatively elliptical orbit for a planet. It's still pretty close to a circle, but it deviates enough that he was able to detect it. So he was actually able to find that it's not really a circle. To draw a circle, all you need is one pin, right? Put one pin at the center and a loop around it and draw yourself a circle. In order to draw an ellipse, you need two, two pins. And if you put two pins and a loop of string and you keep the string taut and you draw it, draw a circle around, or a circle, draw an ellipse around, you will actually get, you'll get an ellipse. So you'll actually get an ellipse by drawing this around. 
So every point on the surface of the, of the ellipse, the distance is the same. It's not the distance from the center that's the same, but it's the sum of the distances from what we call the two foci. So one focus here, one focus here. This length of string is always the same, so no matter where you are, that length of string is the same, so it's the sum of those two that's the same. So a circle, it would be one. You put one pin at the center and draw a circle. For an ellipse, you need two pins. And the further apart you put those two pins, the more squashed the ellipse becomes. And I think one of your homework questions has you go through some of these and has you calculate some of these numbers in determining the semi-major axis of the ellipse and the eccentricity of an ellipse. You're given a couple of pieces of information and you have to figure out the other ones. But some of the terminology used is, first of all, when we're talking about the sun, the closest point of approach, which is on the one end of the ellipse here, when we're looking at the long axis, is the major axis. So can you guess what the axis going this way is called? No, it's not labeled. Minor axis? Yeah. So there is a major axis. And there is the value A is the semi-major axis, which is just half the major axis. And that's the average distance from the planet to the sun. So when you look up those numbers in the back of the book that tell you the Earth is 93 million miles away from the sun, that's on average. So the Earth's orbit is actually an ellipse. Sometimes it's a little bit closer, sometimes it's further away. Not near as much as this exaggerates. It's exaggerated so it actually looks a little bit like an ellipse for you. But it is definitely a little bit closer at sometimes and a little bit further away at sometimes. And you can act and you can determine that. The further apart these so the further away the sun gets from the center, then the more squash that's going to be. When we, if you look at comets, comets are even more extreme. Comets have, can have a really, you know, they can come in real close to the sun and they can go really far out. They can come in close to the sun, they can come inside the orbit of Mercury, and they can go out past the orbit of Neptune. So they can have a really, really squashed elliptical orbit. But this is the first law that he came up with. The planetary orbits are ellipses, and the sun is at one focus. The points here at the end are the perihelion and aphelion are the closest and furthest approaches of the planet to the sun. Now those have different names depending on what you're talking about. So I say perihelion and aphelion here if you're talking about orbiting the sun. If you're talking about orbiting the earth, do you know what we call them? Probably heard of them if you talk about, talk about satellites or anything orbiting the earth. Apogee and perigee, very good. So it's just helion refers to the sun, helios for the sun, perigee, geo for the earth. So if you were talking about some other object, it would, it would, the names would change. So when I say perihelion, if I ask for something with the closest approach to the earth for a satellite, you don't want to say perihelion. It's perigee. If you're talking about the closest approach or furthest approach from the, from the sun for a planet, you don't want to say apogee because it's aphelion. You got the right idea down, but not, it's not exactly it's not the exact it's not the correct answer. So helion it refers specifically to the sun. Now that was the first law that Kepler came up with. So planetary orbits are ellipses, and the sun is at one focus. What's at the other focus? Nothing. 
Or as one astronomer, or as one astronomy professor I had used to like to put on his exams, he had that question, what's it the other one? And he'd put the ghost to Kepler. So, maybe. Who, where Kepler's ghost is, I don't know. But Okay, Kepler's second law. Okay, this is the one everybody loves. I'll explain it in a little simpler terms in a second. But Kepler's second law formally states that an imaginary line connecting the sun and the planet sweeps out equal areas and equal times. And I know that makes a lot of sense. I'm sorry. But that, that's formally what it says. Is that a question, sir? Yeah, um, if there's no second focus point, what pulls it back? Just the sun, the gra sun's gravity. So why isn't it like, equal on both sides? Is it because of the magnetic field? Well, we'll see. I'll show you in a minute what the difference, because this one actually explains a little bit why it's different. Okay. That there's a difference in what the difference, what the difference is in terms of the motion. So give me a second, let me see if this one helps. If not, remind me and we'll come back to it. So what you have here is what I'm saying is that if it takes one month to go from this point to this point, and one month to go from this point to this point, and one month to go from this point to this point, all those areas, those shaded areas, C, B, and A, are all the same. Now that doesn't make a lot of conceptual sense. I mean, you can see it geometrically, but it doesn't have a lot of meaning. What does that mean? What's happening to the planet in those times? What's the planet actually doing when it's here as compared to when it's at A? How's it moving? It's moving a lot faster. So the planet moves a lot faster when it gets close to sun, the sun. And that's, I'm not sure that's what may be helping what your question was, is that when it gets closer, it comes zipping around the sun and moves a lot faster, and then it moves a lot slower out here. So there is nothing there to be pulling it. It's actually moving a lot slower. Does that help what you were yeah. looking for? Okay. Because that's actually what the difference is. If there was actually like two stars here, then you'd have a much more complicated orbit. So it's like the, um, when you drop a penny in the It goes faster, and then it slows down, and then it goes fast. Yeah. And the same thing here. But I think that, I think if you think of Kepler's laws as say, Kepler's second law as saying that a planet moves faster when it's closest to the sun and slower when it's, moves fur it's further away from the sun, makes a lot more sense conceptually. This is just the formal definition. This is what Kepler found and this is how he found it. He'd track, track out all the observations, make the orbits, and actually, you know, physically measure, you know, with his graph paper and pencil, no computers, none of that good stuff. And he'd actually found that the equal areas and equal times works correctly. But what it really means is that when the planet comes, clo planet comes close to the sun, it moves faster. So the Earth is closest to the sun in January, so the Earth moves a little bit faster in January. The Earth is furthest away from the sun in July, so the sun moves slowest in July. And actually, I, didn't, I never paid attention to it until this morning. I was looking up something for the other class. And what that means, you know, it makes sense to me. It's just something I never looked at before. That means that winter is the shortest month, or shortest month, shortest season. So if you actually look up a table and find out how long it is from, for winter when we're closest, it's like 88, 89 days. And summer is actually 93 days long. So it's actually about a four-day difference between winter and summer. So winter seems real long, especially when you get into February and early March and you're still getting a foot of snow. But it's actually, the season-wise, it's actually a lot shorter, four days shorter than winter. So that was interesting, interesting aside there.
So that was Kepler's second law. And again, all based on the observations that Tycho made. Kepler's third law, the math one, yay, or no, depending on your, depending on your point of view. But it says that the square of the period of, an, of a planet's orbital motion, so we look at the period, how long it takes to orbit the sun. So here, convert it all to years for you is proportional to the cube of the semi-major axis. Semi-major axis, remember with the ellipse, was the average distance of the planet from the sun. So for the Earth, the semi-major axis is one astronomical unit. Right? By definition, that's what we define an astronomical unit to be, is the average distance from the Earth to the sun. The orbital period P is one year. So what Kepler's second law, or third law says, is essentially that for, for planets going around the sun, a cubed is equal to p squared. So if a is 1 au and p is 1 year, 1 cubed is 1 times 1 times 1. Nice and easy, right? You want that one, right? 1 times 1 times 1 is 1. So it says that 1 equals 1 squared, which is 1. Now there's actually a more complex version of this because one cubic AU does not equal one square year physically. If you're looking at the units, it would be seeing like you know one cubic centimeter equals one square second, which wouldn't make sense. There's actually constants and other stuff in there that really makes it work when you look at Newton's version of it. But just looking at numbers, you can, if you use astronomical units in years, it's all set up so that you don't have to worry about any of that. So if we look at that for all these other planets, and I'm not going to make you go through the calculations, but Mercury is 0.387 astronomical units from the sun on average. Earth or period is about 0.241 years. And again, you don't need to memorize all of these numbers. I'm not going to test you on these numbers specifically. But if you take p squared and divide it by a cubed, so essentially you do what I did here, but instead of setting them equal to each other, divide them by each other. If they're exactly the same, then your answer should come out to be 1. And they come out pretty close. 1.002, it's pretty close to 1. 1.001, exactly, exactly. 0 0.999, 0 0.998, 0 0.993, 0 0.986. So they all come very, very close you know, to within measurement errors, pretty much. They're actually pretty close to showing that Kepler's third law works. There is a relationship between how big the orbit is, so the bigger the orbit, and how long it takes to go around once. So Neptune, for example, is 30 times further away from the sun than the Earth. And it takes it 163 times longer to go around the sun once. So if you lived on Neptune, you'd never get to your first birthday, unless you lived to be really, really old, 163. You know, a lot of people might not make a first birthday on Uranus. The kids always like, you know, doing, little kids, you know, I talk to my daughter, like, Mercury, I'd be so old already, you know. Because you'd be four times older, so if you're nine, you're actually 36. <laughs> so you would be 36 Mercury years. Okay, but that, that's, so those are Kepler's three laws. First says that the orbits are ellipses. Second says that the planet, and I'm going to say it in the easier words, planet moves faster when it's closer to the sun. 
slower when it's further away. And the third says that there's a relationship, relationship between how long or how big the orbit is and how long the planet takes to orbit. And that if we found a new planet, if we were to find a new planet that was so far away from the sun, for example, if I were to find a planet that I said was three astronomical units away from our sun, then you could tell me its orbital period. I'm not asking you to do that, but you could go through and do it. You'd have to work kind of the calculation we did backwards. But you'd know what this number is, so you could cube this. So 3 times 3 times 3 would be what? 27? And then you'd have to take the square root of 27, which would be a little over 5. So it would take it about 5 years. So if something were 3 astronomical units from the sun, it would take it a little over 5 years to orbit. Again, I'm not asking you for those specific calculations, although we will do, we will do a lab not this week, in a couple weeks I'll probably do one where we actually go through a couple calculations on Kepler's law where I make you go through the big detailed calculations. So, not on the exam, I know, but just on a couple, just to have you actually done, do, do it once or twice and have seen it. So we'll do a similar calculation to this on one of the labs. Alright, how big is the solar system? Now I already said the distance from the Earth to the Sun is one astronomical unit. So we looked at that table before. That's what we call it by definition. We define an astronomical unit to be, to be exactly that far. How do we measure that? How do we measure what that astronomical unit is? It's good and, good and easy to say that it's one astronomical unit away. But what does that actually mean in terms of distance? You know, How many miles is that? An astronomical unit doesn't have any meaning to you, right? It's a distance from the Earth to the Sun. Hopefully you know that. But it doesn't give you any meaning in terms of distances. Well, it's not something that you can measure very easily. In fact, it's only been very recently that we've been able to get a good measurement of it. There are a couple of geometric ways to try to do it. When the planets are aligned in certain areas, you can try to do some measurements to determine you know, what, the dis- what this distance is in a real unit. It's very difficult to do. But once we got radar, de- developed radar, then we can do it a lot easier because we can send a radar signal to Venus and bounce it off, wait for it to come back and detect it, and we can then measure how that will tell us how long it took. If we know that this is, if the Earth is one astronomical unit and Venus is seven-tenths of an astronomical unit, well we know how far they are apart, right? Three-tenths of an astronomical unit or about. So we know how far they are apart in astronomical units and we can measure their distance exactly because we know how fast a radar wave travels. And I know we come back to it in the next chapter. We haven't really covered it yet. Does anyone know how fast a radar wave travels? Question first? Go ahead. Yeah. Would it travel faster in space than on Earth? It would travel slightly faster in space, yes. It will travel a little bit slower. Does anybody know how fast it travels, though? A radar signal is a radio signal which is exactly the same, just a much longer wavelength as the light wave. And we're going to talk about light in the next chapter. So it travels at the speed of light. So it will take it, let's see, about three, about two and a half, three minutes to travel to Venus. And the same to travel back. But we can measure that very exact, very, very exactly. We can measure, we can send the signal at this instant, and we can leave our radar dish pointed there and wait for the signal to come back. And we can time that very, very precisely. 
And once we do that, we know how long it took to travel. I mean, we knew how long, we knew the time. We know the velocity of it because it travels at the speed of light. Now it does vary, that's a little bit, but most of that travel time, the vast majority, it travels for a frac tiny fraction of a second through the Earth's atmosphere to get out, which would be slightly slower. Then it travels through a vacuum the entire way there and back. So it's only that little tiny fraction of a second. And it takes about a second for light to get to the moon. And that's, of course, there's no atmosphere there. So it's a very tiny fraction of a second. So most of the travel time is all, is all in space. So it's very easy. You can just use the full speed of light. And then you could calculate you know, how many kilometers that was. So so many kilometers corresponds to 3 tenths of an astronomical unit. And you've actually determined it. Now you might look at that and say, well, why didn't we just bounce the radar signal off the sun? Right? Wouldn't that be easier? We just get one AU directly. We don't have to bounce it off Venus and then do an extra calculation. Any ideas as to why that would not work too well? Yeah? Too much interference. The sun is actually a very strong radio source itself. So you can ask, sun actually emits radio waves, so it would cause interference. It also does not have a solid surface to bounce off. You know, Venus has a solid surface and a rather dense cloud cover you could bounce off. The sun really does not. It's very diffuse in, the, in its atmosphere. So it would be very difficult to get a coherent signal coming back off of it. It's sort of like be sending a radar signal off, of, you know, bouncing it off of a tree. And you've got all the leaves moving. Well, you're going to get all mixed up signals. And the more you get of that, the less strong signal you're going to get coming back. Whereas if you bounce it off a building that's just there, you get a nice strong signal. So that's one way we actually use to determine distances. And it's actually the only way we have now, the best way we have to calibrate distances in the solar system. And we can measure very accurately at this point how far away everything within the solar system is. Now that only works. We can do it for Venus. Venus, because it's the closest. You can do the moon if you want to measure how far the moon is away from the Earth. You get that very accurately. But once you get much farther than about an astronomical unit away, the return signal just becomes too weak. So you can't use it for the outer part of the solar system. So Neptune, which is 30 astronomical units away, you couldn't really send a radar signal to and reflect back. It's too far. The, this beam spreads out as it goes out. So the further away you get, the less accurate you're going to get. And there's also the outer planets also don't have a solid surface. And then there's the time, th time frame. If that's 30 astronomical units away, it's taking 30 times longer for that signal to get to Neptune and back than it does to, for the sun to get to the Earth. So that's 240 minutes, which would be what? Four hours? So about four hours worth. So four hours to get there. Then it's got to turn around and come back. Four more hours. So the time del delay is a problem, too. So you have time and distance. So it works. The nice thing is, once you calibrate the distance and once you say that you know the inner solar system, the outer solar system, we know the distance is an astronomical unit. So once we know what an astronomical unit really is, 93 million miles, then we can tell how far away everything else is. Come on. Doesn't want to do it today. OK. All right. So Newton's laws. So we had Kepler's three laws. Now we got three, three more laws of motion. And then gravity. So Newton's really got four laws for us to do. 
But there are three laws of motion that we're going to talk about first. And then one law of gravity. Now Newton's first law says that an object at rest remains at rest and an object moving in a straight line at a constant speed will not change its motion unless there's some external force acting on it. You've heard that one before maybe previously? Okay. So you're probably vaguely, at least vaguely familiar with it. So all it means is that if I have a ball and I start it rolling on the table, it goes forever until something else acts on it. But it slows down, right? Why, why is it slowing down? That's not moving in a straight line at a constant speed. So what's causing it to slow down? Gravity? Gravity? In, in a, in a, indirectly, but what is the resistance. resistance, the friction? So there's a little bit of friction against there, which is if there was no gravity, there would be nothing pulling down, so there wouldn't be any force. So it's going to slow down because of friction. But if you're in space and you start something moving, it's going to keep going. And it's not going to change. It'll go in a straight line at a constant speed. Unless something else. So if an astronaut is out there and throws something in a direction, it's not going to slow down the way the ball slowed down rolling across the table. It's going to keep going. And it will keep going at that speed until it gets close enough to something else to change its orbit, to change its motion. So if an astronaut at the space station is doing a spacewalk and throws something, it's going to be affected by the Earth's gravity. But if you're far enough out in space, it'll just move in a straight line at a constant speed. Now that means something for things that are moving in circles. Because the Earth isn't moving in a straight line at a constant speed, right? We're moving in a circle. So we're not moving, we're, we can be moving at a relatively constant speed, but we're not moving in a straight line. And why don't we move in a straight line? What's causing us to change our... It's got to be some force acting, right? Just, just said, it's got to move in a straight line at a constant speed. So what's, what's, what's pulling on us? Gravity. gravity. Gravity of the sun. Yeah. The sun's gravity is pulling on us and causing our orbit to change. So it's constantly pulling on us and it keeps our orbit, instead of being a circle, or instead of being a straight line, it makes it into a circle. But that's because there's an external force acting on it. If the sun were to disappear, well, it would get dark, it would get cold, and the Earth would keep moving in the same direction it is in a straight line. So it would just head off into space at whatever direction it happens to be moving at that point. If the sun were just to suddenly disappear, boom, all of a sudden the Earth, the Earth is traveling around in a circle like this and it'll just start going and it'll keep going and it will just keep going unless it happens to go near something else. Of course, as I said, we'd get awful dark, we'd have no source of light, have the stars, stars would be really pretty for a while, right? Be able to see all the stars, you know, no, no light. Yeah, but the, well, the atmosphere would freeze off and, you know, it wouldn't be a very pleasant wouldn't be a very pleasant thing. But that's what would happen to the Earth. And it also says that an object at rest will remain at rest. So if we set something down, it's going to stay there. That, that, we that one we tend to get, right, usually. That one, makes, that one makes, always makes a little more sense than necessarily this one because you're used, to, you're used to thinking about things like friction. But an object at rest, when you set something down on the table, you expect it to stay there. You know, unless you've got a little kid who comes and moves it when you're not looking. But that's the external force, see? There's that external force. So that's Newton's first law. 
If something is at rest, it'll remain at rest. If something is moving in a straight line at a constant speed, it will keep doing the same thing. Unless there's an external force, or unless something acts on it gravitationally. Newton's second law. When a force is exerted on an object, the acceleration is inversely proportional to its mass. Or written as an equation, A, the acceleration is equal to the force, the amount of force applied divided by the mass. Now that makes sense to us too, I think. If we push on, if you push on something little, right, push a small dog, it moves relatively. You can move it. You push it with some amount of force. If you push with that same amount of force on an elephant, it's not going to budge, right? Unless you were pushing that poor dog really hard. Then maybe. But, you ha- but that's the idea. The bigger the mass, you have to put more force to get it to move the same amount. Or if you apply that same force, you know, if you put that force on pushing a, you know, What's, what's the real one? Real little, some real little car. Push a real little car. Okay, you can move. You know, couple people can push it real easily, right? Even one person on some of those tiny ones. But if you're trying to push a semi, you know, you need a lot more people pushing on it to get it going, right? So it's a, that's, the, that's essentially what Newton's law is telling you. Newton's second law. The acceleration is inversely proportional to the mass. You know, I can push on this, and it moves real easily. I can sit here and push on the board, and I can push for the rest of the class period and into the next one, and I can still be here pushing Friday when everybody comes back, because you're not going to stand here for two days and watch me pushing on the board, because you know nothing's going to happen. It's not going to move. If I could push with enough force, it would, right? If I push with enough force, I could smash it into the next classroom, and then Hack would not be very happy with me. But I don't think I can push with that much force. But again, inversely proportional to the mass. There's a lot of mass here that I'm pushing against. So that's Newton's second law. Newton's third law. When object A exerts a force on object B, object B exerts an equal and opposite force on object A. That's a real good, real good law for us, and it's, we're glad that you know, matter decides to do that. When you're sitting down in the chair, you're exerting a force on the chair, right? You're pushing on the chair. What happens if that chair does not push back at you with exactly the same force? It collapses and falls on the floor, right? Or if it pushes with too much force, you float up into the air. But we don't usually see that one. Be interesting to see. If it, pu- if it was pushing harder than you're pushing down, it would be pushing you up off. You'd move up into the air. So when an object exerts a force on one, so it's a good thing. The ground does the same thing, right? It, pushes, it knows exactly how much to push back. Because if it pushes too much, then I'm floating up into the air. If it doesn't push enough, then I'm down in the room below here, interrupting another class. And same thing with the wall. The wall knows how to push. If I push just hard, if I push so hard, it pushes back at me. I don't go flying back into the classroom. I don't go falling into the next classroom. And that works for. I mean, it works if you're throwing something out in space. If you're if you're out in space, it'll do the same thing. If you're exerting a force on A on B, could be the Earth on the Moon. So the Earth tugs on the Moon. The Moon tugs on the Earth. Exactly the same. Sun tugs on the earth, the earth tugs on the sun with exactly the same force. Even here, the eraser tugs on, the earth tugs on the eraser, right, and pulls it down. The eraser also tugs on the earth and pulls it up. It's exactly the same amount of force. 
The same amount of force that pulls this down is pulling the Earth up to the eraser. What's the difference from the second law? The mass is a lot different. A lot, lot, lot less mass here. I can lift this up. I can't lift the Earth. So I can lift this up. But the Earth is pulled up a, t a tiny, incredibly tiny bit by that eraser. So when I drop it, it's not just falling to the Earth. They're falling towards each other. And if you do that with two objects that are of the same mass, then they would go and meet each other. But you're just used to thinking of the Earth as still because the actual orbit, the actual amount that the Earth moves would be incredibly tiny. But everything, all the forces are going to be equal and opposite. So those are Newton's three laws. I should give up trying that, shouldn't I? It hasn't worked the first three times, it's not going to work now. Okay. Gravity. So now we want to work on to go under gravity. On the Earth's surface, the acceleration due to gravity is approximately constant. Meaning that no matter where you are on the Earth and you drop something, it's going to accelerate at essentially the same amount. There are some differences. If you go up to a high mountain, it's going to be a little bit less gravity. If you go down to the lowest areas, it's going to be a little bit more gravity. But it doesn't change that. Even those do not change all that much. Even the gravity, the acceleration of the gravity, even if you're up in space, to the space shuttle, for example, or the space station, the acceleration of gravity from the Earth is still almost the same as it is on the surface. So it's still almost as much gravity pulling on everybody up there, which is interesting because they're, in, they're weightless, right? right? They have no weight. They float around in the space station. And that's not that there's no gravity. Gravity is still there. But they're constantly falling. They're just falling around the Earth all the time. So they're in a constant orbit that as the gravity pulls them down, they're in an orbit that makes them move exactly the right amount so that they stay, so that they don't end up moving. So it, they're actually in a complete state of free fall. They're constantly falling towards the Earth, but they're falling towards the Earth by going around it. So that's why they're weightless. But the gra acceleration due to gravity, if you measure the gravitational pull of the Earth at the distance of the, of the space station, it would be essentially the same as it is on Earth, a little bit less. Okay. But on Earth, so if you throw something up, it comes back down, right? So we throw the ball up in the air. Gravity is always pulling it down. It's always directed towards the center of the Earth. One of the reasons we can go south of the equator, right, without falling off the Earth, because gravity is always pulling us towards the center. So if you're in Australia, you know, you're standing upside down. But gravity is still pulling you down. It doesn't matter. Gravity is pulling you down. And even at Harrisburg, you know, we're at 40 degrees, so we're still standing on an angle. But gravity always pulls us straight down, so everything is straight. It appears to be straight down, but if you look at it, if you could put all the people on the surface of the Earth and expand it out, everybody would be standing at different odd angles. You know, people would be standing sideways at the equator and upside down at the southern hemisphere and at a, you know, at a 45 degree angle or about here. The only people who would be standing straight up is if you happen to be at the North Pole. So Santa's standing straight up. Everybody else is. Everybody else is standing at some, some angle. And it's always directed towards the center. So it always pulls us towards the center. So that's why. If we're at the South Pole, we're still pulled. Then gravity is pulling us upwards. If you're at the North Pole, it's pulling you down. Any place else, it's always pulling you towards the center of the Earth. Now we can, I think, formalize that as getting an equation here. Yay, another equation, I know. We love it. We get through most of them pretty quick. They're not too bad. For two, uh, two objects with mass, and this is Newton's law of gravity, 
The gravitational force depends on their masses. So you multiply the two masses together and that tells you how much force there is. And it depends on the distance between them, which is r. So since that's kind of little there, write it a little bit bigger there. So it depends on the product of the masses. And it depends on the distance between the two. So the further two things are apart, the less the force between them. If the Earth were twice as far away from the Sun, it would be, and it's r squared, so it depends on the square of the distance. So if the Earth was twice as far away from the Sun, the force would be one quarter as much. So that's what this little graph is showing you here, is that you have some force, if you're at one unit of distance, say one astronomical unit, the force at two astronomical units is one quarter as much. At three astronomical units it's one ninth. And at five astronomical units it's one twenty-fifth. So it gets much, it gets small very, very quickly. So the gravitational force is real good as objects are close to each other or when the masses are very, very big. And a lot of masses, you know, like the distances are very big in astronomy, the masses are very, very big. You know, the mass of the Earth is, very, is large, the mass of the Sun is many times larger than that. The planets are big. And then when we talk later in the class, we'll get into stars, other stars. You know, the Sun can be a relatively small star. So there's lots of stars that are much bigger than the Sun. And then we have galaxies and clusters of galaxies that have even larger masses. And we use this same equation for determining their forces and their motions. So determine the force between them and the motions between them, we use the same equation. Again, it works really well for almost everything we use. It's not perfect. It's not exactly right in all cases. When the mass gets really big and the distances get really small, that's not, it doesn't give you the right force anymore. But only in extreme cases. And when we come on to, I talk about Einstein a little bit when we do black holes, we'll come back and we'll look a little bit about the differences there. But the idea I want you to know here is to look at the equation. I don't expect you to be able, I'm not expecting you to put numbers into it. I'm asking you to look at how it varies. So if I told you we had the Earth and the Moon and we doubled the mass of the Moon, what happens to the force? We double the mass of the Moon. Don't change the mass of the Earth, but double the mass of the Moon. It increases by how much? Well, if we double them, we just double the mass. So we now have two. We now have two masses here. So it'll be double. See? So if you double the mass of one of the objects, it's going to double the force. If you double the masses of both of the objects, four, t- four times. Two times two. If you double the distance, everything gets further away. The force is going to get, it's going to decrease, but not by half, by four, by four times, because it's squared. So you can think of it as changing this to twice the distance squared, which is four times what you had right there. So it's going to be four times less. How about if we decrease the distance by a factor of two? What if we get closer? What's going to happen? It's going to get greater or larger force? It's going to get a larger force, and by how much? Not twice. Four times. Same as, same as down here. Remember, it's, if it's squared, it's going to be four times. If we're doubling it, it'll be four times. If we were tripling it, it would be nine times. If we were quadrupling it, it would be 16 times. So it's just 
look at some of those and just see how you can vary it. I'm not going to give you a question, for example, on, an, on a quiz that says, you know, here's the number for G, here's a mass, here's a mass, here's a R, what's the force? I'm not giving you those. But I might ask you something where if we doubled the mass of an object, what's going to happen to the force between the two? I may give you a question like that. Or if we have the distance or double the distance. And again, some, I'm looking for something you can do in your head. I'm not going to do, well, if you increase the distance by 3.86 times, you, know, you don't have to pull out a calculator for the exams or quizzes. You're welcome to have one if you like, if it makes you feel more comfortable, but you won't need it. It would be things like ones and twos, you know, things that you could usually just do in your head. Okay, questions on that? All right. Next slide. So here's what happens. We talked about this a little bit already. So the gravitational pull of the sun is what keeps the planets in their orbits. So the planet wants to go straight. Kepler's or Newton's first law says that it wants to go straight. It wants to move in a straight line at a constant speed. So it tries to move there, but there's this force pulling on it towards the sun. So instead of being here, it's gotten pulled and it's now in here. And it does the same thing each time. It wants to go this way. Sun wants to pull it straight in. I mean, the sun doesn't want to pull it into a circular, but the sun, the gravity is trying to pull things together. So if the sun's trying to pull it in and this moves in, it's pulling it a little bit and it keeps it in a stable orbit. So it'll do this the whole way around and it will keep it in its elliptical orbit. But it's the sun is what is causing the position of the planet to change. It keeps it in the orbit there. It wants to move at a straight line. And if the sun were to disappear right here at this point, the planet would just keep traveling like that and would go on there forever. Unless it happened to come close to another star at some point in the distant future. As I said, we get awful cold, awful dark, but a nice view of the stars. Okay, next. Now when we look at the objects, we have a thing called the center of mass. And easy way to think about this is like a seesaw. That if you have two equal masses sitting on it, they'd be exactly the same, exactly as far away as they'd balance. So you could sit there and be balanced. Whereas if someone does this with a little child, what's going to happen? It's going to go, right? Or this way. I guess it's going to go this way. If the little child's over here, it's going to go like that. Unless the child moves in far enough, right? If that child moves in close enough to balance it, or you put enough children on it, then, you can then it will balance again. And that's what we call the center of mass. If we're in equal mass, it's right in the middle. So if we had two stars of equal mass that were orbiting each other, their center of mass would be right in between. And that's what they're both orbiting around. The Earth and the Sun also orbit around a center of mass. But what's much bigger, Sun or the Earth? Sun is much, much bigger. But really, when we look at it, the Sun and the Earth actually orbit each other. So the Earth isn't just orbiting the Sun. The Sun and the Earth both orbit around a common center of mass. But if you think about that, you have how many millions of masses for the Sun here and one Earth. So as you get closer and closer, as you get more and more mass, the, actual, the Sun's orbit is actually deep inside the Sun. So the Sun is orbiting in a small circle around its center. So it actually moves a little bit. And when you add up all of the planets, there's actually a little bit of motion of the Sun. The Earth and the Moon do the same thing. The Earth moves 
around. The, the moon orbits around the Earth, but really Earth and moon both move around a common center. So that we have, so that I say they're constantly, so they're both moving. So when we look at that, the Earth is actually moving. Sort of like when we talked about, I said, when I drop the eraser, you know, it falls to the Earth, but the Earth also rises to the eraser. They both occur at the same time. It's just because the Earth is so much more massive that the center of mass for the Earth and Moon system is actually deep within the Earth. But the Earth is actually moving in a little orbit around the cent- its center as well. And I think we're going to come back because that goes through all of Kepler's laws again. So I think I am going to stop there and then we will finish this up next time because I don't really have time to get through that slide and do reasonable in a minute. Uh, do not forget homework is due Friday. So I'll take that any time between now and then. And of course you can email that to me Friday as well. And I will see you on Friday. And the quiz is available again anytime.